This week on the pod, we were fortunate enough to have Sean Stern from Youth Brigade, the Better Youth Organization, and Punk Rock Bowling. Um, it's a cool interview. We go through everything from his start in a band in 79 all the way up to the present. And uh, I hope you enjoy listening. If you would like to support the podcast, please like, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. That's very, very important if you want to help out. And uh, please spread the word. Share with your friends. Post on Instagram. Post on Facebook. Um, just try to get the word out as much as you can. It would be much appreciated. If you want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185milesouth. Um and become a patron monthly kick in a little bit of money and uh that really really helps this is what keeps this show going you can also donate paypal.me slash 185 miles south that's another way to go about it but uh let's jump right in this is sean stern on 185 miles south Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. Alrighty, this week on the pod we have Sean Stern from uh, the Better Youth Organization and Youth Brigade fame, and uh, thanks so much for coming on, Sean. Uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. and thanks for Fred Hammer for hooking it up. Um, he wanted me to ask about Silver Strand Beach. Do you remember the first time that you surfed on Silver Strand? Huh. I remember the first time I surfed up there because I, I surfed in Fort Wainimi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at the time probably the best wave I'd ever surfed because I'd been just surfing for maybe a year, year and a half. And that was almost exclusively down in, um, Bay Street near Santa Monica Pier. We we actually we surfed Zuma, we surfed County Line, staircase around there, but I'd never been past County Line and a friend of mine in high school said, Hey, we got this condo in this place called Port Wainimi. I'd never heard of it. Uh, you know, I was fourteen, I think, yeah, fourteen. And uh we went up there at night, got up there probably ten o'clock at night with his parents. His mom woke us up at the crack of dawn and made us a huge breakfast, and then we paddled out, and it was one of the best ways I'd ever surfed up to that point. Because you know, I mean, it's basically all those, all those sort of A-frame, top to bottom beach breaks up there are pretty similar. Yeah. Um, Silver Strand was probably some years later. Mostly, I, sur- I surfed more Oxnard Shores and Port Wainimi in the early days. Um, probably didn't hit Silver Strand in Hollywood until I met people up there and they invited me because in those days you didn't just wander into that beach without knowing somebody or you ran the risk of getting uh, asked to leave. And I don't mean politely. Yeah. Yeah. Not to jump ahead too far, but once uh, you had known the aggression guys, you would go and surf with them. Yeah. I don't, I, I remember when Henry died, I, we all went surfing before his memorial. Yeah. Um, I don't remember ever surfing with any of the guys from aggression, but I'm sure there was times when I went out 
when somebody from the band, or, there was there was a whole gang of people up there that we met um, through the aggression guys. Um, yeah, there was a bunch of skinhead guys up there, the Oxnard, the Oxnard crew that was coming down. Some of those guys were working at Godzilla's back in the early, um, which would have been around 81, 82 when we were at Godzilla's. So I'm sure it was probably some of those guys, but I don't, honestly, I don't remember exactly who. Uh, you know, there was copious amounts of alcohol and sure. weed and so on being consumed through most of my high school and early 20s. Sure. Well, I wanted to jump ahead just on that, but uh, let's go all the way back to the first release you did, which you did a a seven inch with a band called The Extremes in '79. Uh-huh. And yep. this this doesn't get talked about too much. I think it's for like the the hyper record collectors and so forth. But uh, uh-huh. for fans of the pod, um, it's on Test Tube Records, which is the same label that put out the third Zero Seven Inch, so the Chula Vista band. And uh, this is a weird record to describe. Could could you take a stab at it? Because I'm not familiar with anything uh, else that sounds like it. Yeah, it it was uh, the thing is, my, my brother Mark and I have been playing in a band with another guy in high school, and um, we ended up meeting this guy, Mike Michael Schwartz, who went through a bunch of different names: um, Michael Sinatra. Um, Michael Lord, many different other things. But he he was he was living in the Canterbury at the time. It was the summer of 1978, and uh, we, we we had gone to our first sort of punk show. We went to see the Dickies up at the Whiskey, um, probably around spring of '78. And uh, there was a girl that went to high school with us, and she was hanging out at the Canterbury, which was right up the street from the mass. And through her and a bunch of other people, we were starting to meet in that sort of spring and summer of 1978. We met Michael, um, and we started jamming with him. The guy who was playing bass with us didn't want to... He was only, I think, 15 at the time. He didn't really... He kind of freaked out about going up to Hollywood, so we found some other people play and so that band came together and we started it out as a guitar bass and drum punk rock band but uh he kind of brought in the keyboards and he, he was a big fan of david bowie and brian eno and that sort of more art rock stuff which isn't something that we were well versed in at the time um and so that band sort of more more towards that direction um this is all over the period of about a I don't know, a year, maybe a year and a half. And and Chris Trent, who is the guy who decided to start a record label, he's the one that ran um, Test Tube. He'd never done a record label before. We'd never recorded before. We'd never done a record label. Um, so we just kind of all figured it out. That was sort of the nature of the DIY. Um, we, me and my brother Mark, were the ones who pretty much helped Chris figure out what you needed to do to record a record and then press the record. Uh, how to describe it? Well, like I said, it, it was sort of, I had songs that I wrote and then Michael had songs that he wrote. Then we got this guy, Chris in the band. Um, and he was playing keyboard. So he wrote a song, I think actually Michael's song was the, the cover of, uh, 
the Hong Kong Cafe, which he, they kind of wrote and they mixed in some sort of Asian song. I don't remember what it was, but um, yeah, it was very arty. Put it that way. I, w- I would just say it was very arty. And uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't really interested in moving in that way. So I left the band. Mark stayed in the band for a little bit longer. Um, they got one of the guys from the Flyboys came in the band and replaced me for a minute, but that, that only lasted another, I don't know, six months. And then Mark was out, and that's, after that's when we started to use the gig. And so when would that have been? Sometime in 1980? Uh, yeah, 1980 is when we sort of tried it out. When we, when we first started it out, we, ha- we had this house called Skinhead Manor, and that's where we started rehearsing and you know writing some songs. And we had a couple of friends of ours from Huntington Beach, um, Rick Stritch and Bob uh, Schwann. And they came in as singers. Unfortunately, they couldn't sing very well. Um, and I was doing singing too and playing guitar. And it was Mark playing drums. And uh, Adam played bass. And we had this guy, Kevin Stench, who was in No Crisis eventually, but he was in the band. Um, so we, we kicked, actually, there was another, our friend Jason was also for a minute tried to sing too. Um, were you, com- yeah, so were, we, you com- were you confident in your voice? Like, did you like your voice at that time? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I had no problem singing. I mean, it just um, seems like a no brainer. You're a great singer. It's like, who's going to be well, better. <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, it just now, you know, we, we've been playing cover song. We were doing a cover band since the time we were about 16, 17 in high school, doing mainly um, rock covers. You know, I was really into Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin, and I don't know if you probably don't know who Robin Trower is, um, but sort of bluesy rock stuff. You know, we'd do some Aerosmith. We'd do a little of this and that, play at parties. We would put on parties because we were, we, were we were selling weed, and um, we would people would say it's, you know, their parents were going out of town, so let's do a party. And sometimes we would play or we'd get another band. We'd get, I don't even really remember how exactly we managed to get a keg of beer, but we charge five bucks at the door. We'd sell our weed or whatever the hell drugs we had at the time. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's kind of how we got into the whole idea of, of promotion, too. It's just all of the things that we've done in, in, the, in, the, in this uh, business, if you call it that, is, by necessity, we, we just sort of figured ways to do things to make a little money and to have a good party. And um, that's what, that's how it started. So, I mean, I was singing, I was doing covers of other people's stuff, and that's, I'd been singing for several years by that point. So it was, you know, wasn't that difficult. Yeah. Did you guys demo at all, or was the first time you recorded for the comp? Um, we did some demo work. We recorded uh, three or four songs that we never... I think the only song that we kept out of those demos was the Brigade song, which is only on that first recording. Um, We had a few others, like one of the songs called Pray for the Dead. We we even did... This band that we had in high school when we got into punk rock, before we moved, we met all the guys from the Canterbury and the Mass and stuff and started the extremes. That band was called Mess, 
and we had some recordings of that on cassette tape. Uh, I had a song called Vegetate. Some of the words, some of the lines in that song was, what's the point of sitting around in your room, smoking PCP with a bunch of goons? <laughs> All you do is vegetate, 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 vegetate. So those are the deep thoughts I had when I was, you know, 17 years old. It's pretty good because, I mean, you've always been a pretty proactive person. So you've kind of stuck with that. Yeah, well, I mean, when I was a senior, when I was seventeen, I was a senior in high school, and I was taking uh, my English lit- literature classes. The first semester was an existential literature class, and I was reading Camus and Jean Paul Sartre and Kierkegaard. and And the second semester of my senior year was a Herman Hesse class, and all I was reading all the Herman Hesse stuff. So that sort of English literature and Philip Philip philosophy bent was definitely being was a heavy influence on the music I was writing it and that, you know those that was the year that I started reading about hearing about and reading about um, and finally going out to see punk rock stuff because before that I was going to you know I saw Led Zeppelin at the forum I saw um, all kinds of rock bands I saw Johnny Winter at the Palladium you know and we would go to shows all the time but it was all rock and roll stuff did any, oh, of that, well, did, we got did any of that blow you away, though? Like seeing Led Zeppelin in the forum where you're like, fuck, this is amazing? Uh, a lot of it was pretty amazing. Of course, I had no idea at the time that it was, you know, classic rock. It was the music that I'd been listening to since I got into high school. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was pretty aware that these guys were pretty amazing. Uh, I, I was, I think I took Quaaludes when I went to see Led Zeppelin, so I think I may have passed out. Um, during one of the drum solos, because they they did that, the thing. I saw them at the forum, and I mean, I I just remember a lot of the shows were there were seats, you know, which kind of sucked. It, it sort of takes away from me um, the energy of a live musical. So to sit in a seat, you know, it's not cla- it's not classical music, it's not jazz music. Where sitting, you know, I can understand it when you go to a rock and roll show, and then of course that was sort of the draw of punk rock is that you, you didn't go and you didn't sit, you, you actively participated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it wasn't lost on me that a lot of these bands were pretty amazing. But of course, when I heard punk rock and I realized I could do this, um, it sort of brings that bar down where, you know, that was the beauty of punk rock to me is that anybody can pick up a guitar and, or, or play the drums or bass and sing and, and get their voice out and be, in, be inspired to, to make music and hopefully inspire other people to go out and try and uh, do things for themselves. And that, that was the difference because the rock and roll stuff was, it had become in my, you know, in a few years during high school, it had become this big sort of, I mean, it wasn't quite corporate yet, but it was definitely moving towards that. It, 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 I always say in interviews, People talk to me, you know, what got you into punk rock? Um, a, a big part of it is that, that, that the, the rock and roll that I'd heard about was a little bit too young to be a part of it from the 60s um, had sort of evolved into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I have nothing, I have no problem with sex or drugs or rock and roll, but if that's all there was, you know, the problem that the hippies were standing up and speaking out against still existed after the Vietnam War ended. Um, and that's sort of why punk rock came along. It was the music for our generation at that point. 
you know. Yeah, and so the first you do your own label, and the first release you take on is doing a compilation, which seems so ambitious. You're you're what age in eighty two? Um, uh, I, I turned twenty two. My my birthday is in May, so I turned twenty two in nineteen eighty two when we were recording. Um, and, and so what's the cat- that- what's the catalyst of this? Are you are you aware of most of these bands and you want to get them down on record or are you oh, no. reaching out to make friends? Not at all. Or? Yeah. So what's the catalyst? Um, we, we knew some of them because at that point we were already, um, we'd been playing out since 1980 off and on. And then it's just sort of a thing of, well, you're in a band, you go out, you're playing live shows, you're getting some attention. People, you know, are coming to your shows. The next step is to, to travel and tour and to make a record. Um, that's just what you did. And we never thought, oh, we should go and try and get on a major label or any label. It was just the thing of, well, you want to you want to play a show, you put it on yourself. You want to put a record out, you put it out yourself. That's just that was just our ethic of doing these sorts of things since we were in high school, just like putting on parties and. Um, so that's what we did. Yeah. And, and as far as the compilation, we kind of, we realized that if we're going to start a label, um, it would be smart to put out a compilation because there are some bands that have a bit of a name that have put out some seven inches, such as social distortion. Um, and the adolescents who, who've already got some, some recognition out there that we didn't have. And so it made sense to reach out to them. Um, and get some songs. And then, you know, we didn't know the Joneses and we didn't know the Battalion of Saints. Um, friends of ours told us about it, introduced us. And for for both of those two bands, we had no idea. They just showed up and recorded. We we we, we, we made a deal with Mystic to do some recording there and um and that's just how it worked out. It it it, it came out great but it was kind of a little bit of a crapshoot. I mean, we knew we knew the song Social Distortion had would be good, and Bad Religion would be good. They were starting. Bad Religion was very new at that point. Yeah. Aggression we knew because we, you know, we done some stuff with them. Um, remember, we'd, we'd been running this club Godzilla's in 81, um, and so that was also a part of it. Having run Godzilla's, and then we put on this show called Youth Movement 82 at the Palladium, around would have, would have been, I believe in February of 82. Um, so we, we'd been playing with a lot of these bands. We'd become friends with many of them. Um, and that's why I guess really that was the reason if we're going to start a label, we'll do a compilation. It will be something that, you know, you might be a fan of one band and not a part of the other bands. It's a way to introduce people to a bunch of different bands without committing to buying a whole album of a band that, new you know yeah what did you think the first time you heard those battalion of saints songs <laughs> um yeah so we we didn't even know who they are it was mark rude who told us he's like a fan man they're really good you should put, put them on the record he didn't send us they didn't have anything for us to listen to and we'd never seen them play they just came up and went into the studio and george was kind of weird about singing so we had to put a um, a baffle up for him to sing because he he couldn't sing if people were watching him, which I thought was kind of weird for a lead singer. But uh, yeah, they were they were pretty amazing. 
it was it was it was very different than a lot of the stuff that we've seen. I mean, there, you know, there had been some fast bands like uh, middle class at that point, but not anybody that was sort of screaming vocals like that. Yeah, the songs so, were wild. Yeah, it was. It was wild, but it it worked out well. And I mean, even the Joneses was very different than anything that was on the record. But you know, that was the thing in those days that punk rock didn't really. Uh, you know, people now think punk rock sounds this way or sounds that way. In those days, if you had the attitude and you were into, you know, something different, that that was punk rock for us. It still is for me to this, to this day. I don't really sort of put this whole label punk and hardcore and what is and what isn't. It's just, it's more of an attitude than anything else. Yeah, and it's, you not, know, it's, and having, nice. it's also nice on a comp to cut it up a little bit. So... Like uh, well, that was the idea. The idea was, hey, you know, here's a bunch of different music from a bunch of different bands. Hopefully, you you know, maybe you know one of these bands or two of these bands, and you get this record and you you discover a bunch of new stuff. Maybe it's not all for you. You don't like every song, but it's, the idea was you're you're gonna be able to establish the label and help help get these people introduced to these new bands that they may never have heard of. Yeah. Um, and I think it worked pretty well. I mean, it's considered a fair, fairly classic compilation. Um, and to me, that's what a compilation should be. It should be introducing people to a bunch of new bands that they never heard before. Well, this is definitely a classic compilation. I don't. I don't think it's debatable. But uh, do you, do you remember the first time meeting the aggression guys? Uh, I think. The first time we met them, the Starwood, which is down on Santa Monica near Crescent, right, right in the corner of Santa Monica and Crescent Heights, the Starwood used to do a uh, regular Tuesday night show because there, you know, there were a bunch of clubs in Hollywood and would go through these stages where you know, the first show I saw was the Dickies at the Whiskey, and that was in '78. Um, but these clubs, you know, there were four sort of main clubs in, in Hollywood at that point, which was the Starwood. The whiskey, the Roxy, and the Troubadour, and they would do, you know, one of them might be doing some punk shows, and then there might be some problems, and then they'd stop doing it. Maybe another one would do it. They'd sort of go back and forth. Um, but the Starwood for a while was the place that that they were shows. I mean, the Stranglers played there. The first time I thought Devo was there. Um, I don't remember who else. I saw a lot of great shows there, but. But I also were giving them opportunity for local bands to play on, and I believe it was on a Tuesday night, which, you know, typically Tuesday nights are kind of dead. Um, so they, they they let the local punk bands play there. I mean, uh, a lot of bands from Huntington Beach were playing there, like China White, and I'm pretty sure that's where I first met Aggression, just because you know they they would cruise down and. And that was just a sort of meeting place early on, and then eventually, when we when we were doing shows, we 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 did play some shows with them. I, I can't remember what the first show was, but yeah, I, I have a feeling that the probably the first place we met would have been at Starwood. Cool. So also in '82, you go and do your first LP, and uh, you go into Mystic and record, and then can you take me through this? You. Uh, you press 800 copies and then decide that you don't like how it sounds. Yeah. So we had that, you know, we got, we made some money from Godzilla's and from, from, you know, a little bit of money that we made from Godzilla's we used to 
put the money up to do the show at the, the youth movement 82 show at the palladium and so a little bit of money from that that we had saved um we decided we were gonna make start the label and do the do the recording um we met doug moody and you know i'll give him credit for um being you know giving us some pretty valuable information on how the record business works um and he came up with this idea he said you know there's these little labels because he'd been around before i mean i don't know 90 percent of what he says can be believed as far as what what he was involved in because if you listen to him he he was involved in led zeppelin recordings and Jimi hendrix recordings and all kinds of stuff but maybe he was maybe he wasn't i don't know but, uh, you know, he pointed out that if we, and at this time you have to remember, there wasn't a lot of sort of independent distribution anymore. Um, I don't know if you know much of the history of the recording business, but at that point there was a, a lot, the major labels had sort of been consolidating and taking power and buying up the smaller labels in the 60s and then into the 70s. And there was, you know, five or six major labels at that point. And they, they would eventually start cannibalizing each other and, and get taken over by big corporations in the eighties. Um, but at that point he pointed out that if you release the record, you know, you're basically going to have to go into record stores yourself, um, try to convince them to take the records. Most of them wouldn't want to pay for them right away. They want them on consignment, meaning you give them to them. If they sell them, then they pay you. If they don't sell them, you got to take them back. Uh, and he said, and trying to get your record distributed through the rest of the country and the rest of the world would be difficult. And he envisioned this idea of, well, you know, if a bunch of small labels banded together, um, they could make a deal with one of these sort of, uh, there was several small or independent distributors that had been starting up. Most of them were just doing imported stuff, bringing stuff in from Europe that the major labels had picked up. And, and the punk scene was sort of, you know the punk scene was sort of great for that because there were a bunch of bands out of England that the major labels had no clue about and they were starting to get a lot of attention and so these distributors filled this niche they would they would bring these records over from the English pressings of them and they'd sell them to a bunch of different stores around the US and you know he saw that he saw he pointed out to us like look these are the distributors you probably want to go after but you're just one little label and you got one record, they're probably not going to pick your stuff up. And it was true, which I would come to find out. So he, 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 he approached another distributor. His idea was, hey, we'll get a bunch of different punk rock labels in L.A. together um, under one banner and they'll be able to go make a good deal with the distributor. But he wanted us to be the guinea pigs and I was very wary of that, but we ran out of money when we were recording. And he basically said, oh, I'll give you credit um, if you let, you know, let me do this with your compilation and the Youth Brigade record. So I agreed to try it out and then we left on tour and everything was kind of rushed. Um, and when we left on that tour, that was another State of Mind tour, the Youth Brigade record hadn't been, hadn't been mastered and, and pressed and we were waiting for it. So what, what Doug did is he went and made a deal with, um, I think it was, important records distribution and uh they gave him an advance unbeknownst to us and he put all the uh the parts to the manufacturing like the stampers and the, and the the mothers the processing everything was done under his name 
which shouldn't have been because he didn't own it. Um, and he got an advance and he used that money to press the record. Um, and then, like you said, we heard the record when we were on the road and we didn't like the way it sounded. We thought it was the mix. We came to find out many years later that it wasn't the mix, that it was just the mastering. Oh, was this the uh, mastering? But when we came bad. back to the, that's, that's yeah, insane. The bad. We, yeah, we remastered it and, it and it came out much better and we re-released it on CD many years later. But when we came back from the tour, we took a visit over to Doug and said, what's going on with the record distribution? And he said, well, you know, he, he made a lot of excuses, um, but we said, well, you know, you said you were going to get all these other labels together to do this, this distribution thing, and there are no other labels, there's just us. And uh, we decided, you know, the plan that you had didn't come to fruition, so we'll just, we'll just be running this ourselves from now on. Um, and when, you know, first I said, well, I need an accounting. How much money did you get from the distributor? So on and so forth. What did you ship out Who, you know, an accounting. And he made a lot of excuses and never came up with anything. And so then I got it into it with him and he, I called the places, I called the pressing plants. And then they all bit, that's when they all told me that everything was under his name and I'd have to get him to release it. And he started bullshitting. Um, this is why I think that he's a thief because he tried, he basically tried to steal our stuff from us, um, by putting it under his name, which was never the agreement that we had made. Um, so basically one night, I don't know if you know about where mystic mystic was around the corner from the Cafe de Grand. Sure. So we were over at the Cafe de Grand one night at a show. Um, and I've been tired. I was tired of getting the runaround from, from Doug so we were we were drinking a bit and talking up about what an asshole Doug was and how he was trying to rip us off. And some of the aggression guys were there with us. And we were telling them about it. And we all decided we were going to go pay Doug a visit. It was probably about midnight, one in the morning. And somebody was recording in there. And we walked in. And we basically, you know, we basically, I, I basically said, I need all my shit released back into my name tomorrow. If you don't, I'm going to smash the shit out of your whole entire studio. And, you know, there was me and my brothers and some of the aggression guys and a few other friends. And, uh, yeah, he, everything was released back in our name within the next, by the next day. And we got all our stuff back. And that was the last time I dealt with Doug Moody. And I warned Bance not to do anything with him because he's a thief. He's always been a thief. He got worse after that. And uh, you can talk to any of the Nardcore bands that did recordings with him. He basically, Never, if they ever got any signed contract, he never paid it. As far as I, as far as any bands I know that have been done a record with with Mystic, they never got dime from him. They never got a, ro- a royalty statement or any accounting from him. He would just basically give bands a box of records here, a box of records there, just trying to appease them. And that's what he's been doing for the last well, thirty-five plus years. Yeah, because um, eighty-two is super early for him. Yep. So, yep. Uh, and you know, if you if you listen to his story, he he helped create punk rock, um, and he's instrumental in, in in making the punk rock scene in in California happen. And hardcore was his invention, and blah 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 blah. But he never he never wrote a song, never played an instrument, never played a show, never did any touring. He's just a guy who had a recording studio, which is helpful. 
and he helps give bands the opportunity to put a record out. But that's all well and good. But if you're just going to rip all the bands off and keep all the stuff, keep their masters and keep selling the stuff through for, for over 40 years and never pay anybody and never give anyone any accounting and deny that that ever happened and act like somehow you own it all and you're the king of punk rock which you're not you're the king of narcore which you're not i'd say that's a pretty shitty thing to do and i i do feel a little guilty for having you know been the one that you know mark and i are the ones that found the studio and, and brought aggression there and aggression pulled all the bands narcore but we did tell all the bands be careful, that guy. You'll never see any money if you do a recording with him, and you, and you, unless you sign a contract and get your rights done. And none of them did, apparently. So, what can you do? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, aggression does the record on your label, and then they go to Mystic after that. And uh, do you know why that would have happened? Well, because we didn't see, we didn't, we didn't hear songs from them that made sense to do another record. Oh, and, okay, gotcha. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, why do you think that Mystic why do you think they re-recorded songs that were on the first record? Yes. Put like them out with Mystic. Yes, yeah, like half and half <laughs> that uh the self-titled record. That's kind of Yeah, yeah that, that record is kind of strange. Yeah, they, they from what I understand, you know, we lost touch with those guys. Mark Mark moved up to Colorado and they for a while they became a sort of blues rock band. Sure. You know, and unfortunately, you know, drugs and alcohol, like with many bands, became more important than writing music, it seems. So, it seems that the best stuff they ever did was stuff they put out on BYO. Well, yeah, of course. (laughs) It's it's all their classic material, is the comp and then that LP is absolutely the best stuff. I mean, all the Mystic stuff is kind of like weird live stuff and then that LP which is just kind of strange um, just because but, it's half- right but that's that's unfortunately the problem is that Doug Moody wasn't really interested in putting out great music no it's quantity and, and it's quantity yeah it's, yeah it's quantity and it, it's whatever he could put out and try and sell it was about making money and it, you know we're not talking large amounts of money but when you're keeping all the money for yourself and you're not paying the artist who deserves the money and should be getting whatever the agreement was they should be getting it and they're not you know that's not that's not exactly a, a very good business model for the artist yeah for sure so also in 82 you do the documentary another state of mind and this is like it's so ambitious thing about doing a punk rock documentary in 82 you know the video cameras are huge i can't even imagine like getting the sound you know how who do you well, lean, who do you lean on for information of how to like do this project well that i i can say we didn't really have much uh that that wasn't something that we did ourselves that was something where a guy i know two guys i know from high school well it was mainly one guy i know from high school this guy adam small so uh, i don't remember exactly where i bumped into him but uh you know he he had managed to get himself involved in this situation where he had all this equipment because he was working for some rich guy who had decided that he wanted Adam to go and follow him around whenever he asked him to and <laughs> videotape his antics you know on his boat whatever I mean it was sure. it was a weird it's a DIY lifestyle the rich is famous <laughs> yeah um, 
And so that guy, he just somehow, I bumped into him and we got talking and I told, I mentioned that we were doing the tour and he, he decided this sounded like a good idea. Oh, maybe it may be that, um, the other guy, Peter Stewart, he had, he was, we went to high school with him too. He had lived in Skinhead Manor for a minute, but you know, Skinhead Manor had ended eight months. Well, and he had moved out at least a year before we decided to, to do the, another state to do the, the tour. So I don't really remember. Mark might remember, but somehow I saw, I saw Adam somewhere and he mentioned that he wanted to go out and film this. And then he got Peter involved. We all knew each other from high school. So we didn't really have to do very much other than, you know, as far as the video itself, I booked the tour. Um, we, we took some of the money that we'd made from Godzilla's, um, and had bought the school bus way back, you know, with the idea that we were going to tour. This was way back in, I think we bought that tour bus in maybe November or December of 1981. And then we fixed it up and you can see us fixing it up before we did the tour. In the movie, they filmed some of that in a little opening montage. Um, but yeah, it was, but the disappointment for me, of course, and you know, we see it now more than anything of so-called reality TV and how much it gets manipulated in the editing room. But even then, you know, I was under no illusions. My dad's a filmmaker, so I was under no illusions. I know how movies are and TV shows are made, but I had hoped that even obviously you've got to edit it down because you're going to take hours and hours of footage. Um, but they did man- manipulate quite a bit of the, the narrative in that movie. I mean, that, that whole thing of, of Mike writing that song along the way was pretty much put together. I mean, he came up with the idea while we were on the road, but a lot of that footage of them interviewing him at different places was well, those those were done in California after the tour was over. So That's unfortunately, still, <laughs> it's still nice to stitch it together a little bit, even though if it's a, a little bit of a fib. Yeah, the, the, the sad thing the sad thing about it though is there's a bunch of footage um, when we were in New York in you know that didn't make it in there. There's a bunch of footage. Vice Squad did some shows. There's a bunch of footage of Vice Squad that didn't make it in there. There's a bunch of other bands that didn't make it in there. That whole, I don't know what it was, but Peter became enamored of that girl in D.C. And none of the people that we're friends with in D.C., none of them knew who she was. Oh. Everybody's all, who's that girl? We've never <laughs> seen her at a show in our lives. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he saw some girl outside the show, started talking to her and thought this is a great thing to, to, to film and, and feature in the movie, which was kind of crazy considering how much insane classic punk rock stuff they filmed that didn't make it into this. And I, and I talked to them for years and said, look, let me, let me get that footage. And, you know, we were supposed to be involved in the editing and they said, they, they no, we were locked out. No, you just see the finished product. This is what you, this is what it is. We had no say, um, but there was all these hours of footage. I'm like, just let let us have that footage so we can put something together. Yeah, eh, it just sat in storage and then it disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. Yeah, it's disappointing because years later you would do your own documentary and that one came out great. 
So that would have been an, hey. like an awesome like bonus disc or something, you know, the lost oh, yeah. stuff. From, that, uh, we, yeah, we had, we had, I was, I was trying to get that footage. And then when we went to Europe, um, the second time back in the nineties, I was, uh, I, we took a video crew around and filmed some stuff, but you know, unfortunately we have a lot of great ideas, but you know, we just don't know. We never had in those days the time and the resources to, to make some of them happen. But, uh, I'm pretty proud of the fact that we were able to go out do these tours and get that movie made and, uh, um, you know, have this label and put out all these releases. It, it was, uh, it wasn't easy all the time, but, it, and we had no idea a lot of time what we were doing, but we, we managed to, to do all that. And we also managed to, you know, not to, to, to sort of sustain ourselves and make a bit of a career pay the rent, get by, and, and survive all these years, which yeah, I mean, not an easy thing to do. At the end of the day, it was an inspirational movie about like touring in punk rock. I think it still inspires, you know? I mean, yeah, it, ins- I mean it inspired me. I, it, I loved it. Yeah, and I mean, in the day, um, there was a thing called Night Flight, and uh, somebody contacted me from there and said, you know, we have this show. Um, you should get you should get your movie. They they heard about the movie. I don't think they've seen it. And I'm the one that called the guys who owned it. Said because they made a deal after they finished making it. They made a deal with a porn distributor. Um, because that was sort of the beginnings of the videotape industry. I don't know if you've seen Boogie Nights, but they were there's a there's a whole thread in, in Boogie Nights where there there's the argument between making porn videos on film when the future was videotape and it's way cheaper and they didn't want to switch over. But sure. so porn, porn distributors, porn, you know, porn movie makers were some of the pioneers in the video uh, industry. And that's who they made a deal with. So the porn distributors said, you know, we'll take this movie and we'll put it on VHS and sell it. It didn't do very well, but we got it, we got it onto this so-called night flight, which was, you know, on one of these local, one of these networks, I don't remember what it was, but, it got that that helped enable us to get all over the country. It was shown late at night, I think, most of the time, eleven, twelve, one in the morning. Sure, but that that sort of helped make it become a little bit of a cult thing for a while. That's super cool, and and a lot of people sure. don't know that there was a second bus went too, right? Like aggre- was aggression and uh, battalion of saints? Did they go on the tour as well? Well, they did their own thing. I mean, they they came to us and said, "Yeah, you know, we want to go out and do a tour and." all this sort of stuff. And I said, cool, but <laughs> we don't have any money, you know, <laughs> they, they, they seem to have this, I, I, I've read before or heard stories before where we have this sort of idea that somehow it was an official thing that we put up that we were involved in and that we abandoned them. And they broke down or something. Um, well, that's why you're here yeah, to straighten it all what, out, Sean. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's like they said to us, Oh, you know, we want to do something like that. And we said, cool, go for it. But we don't have any money to, to, you know, and it's hard enough just for me to book us this one thing. Um, I'm happy to share with you all the information that I have. You want to go out and book it, do it yourself. But we're not a booking agency. We're, you know, we're doing this one tour for us. And we asked Phil for the source to come along because, you know, they had a, they had a seven inch out and they were getting a bit of, notoriety at the point yeah um 
but yeah, this idea that that aggression and battalion change were going to go out and do this other CYO tour, um, we said, yeah, go for it if you want. But we you know, we had nothing really to do with it other than saying, yeah, do it. So it was a totally separate thing. It wasn't like the it wasn't the another state of mind tour that they were on. No. Okay. No. It's a completely no. separate thing they went off and did. Yeah, I mean, we were vaguely aware of it, um, but I don't think it, it made it past Arizona from what I know, or maybe Texas. Okay. And I think they broke down. But yeah, it was not it was not something that we had really any hand in. We didn't finance it. We had no money. You know, we're, 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 we, we didn't have anything to do with booking or mapping it out or doing anything other than they just mentioned they they wanted to do it and we said yeah if you want to do it go for it i mean gotcha we we don't have money to fund it and we we certainly can't book it we don't have a bunch of people sitting in an office in la that are you know we're not a, we're not some label like uh you know some major label or even a we're not flash records or any of that sort of stuff at that point Splash had become a decent label that ended up going and making a deal with a major, you know, but that's not anywhere near where we were. So in 83, you go back and you record the LP again and, uh, you just switch out, you switch out some songs and, uh, and this is a recording now that you're finally happy with. And this is a sound inferior LP that like you still buy today. Correct. Yeah, we, we came back, um, you know, there was, there was a pretty sort of life-changing experience to travel around the U.S. and Canada and a bus that kept breaking down and being documented on film and watching watching the sort of soap opera that you see on another state of mind as, as everything falls apart. Um, sure. But managing somehow to make it through all that, you know, um, I'm the one that put the whole thing together. I'm the one that booked the whole thing and we 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 managed to finance it, put up, get the money, and 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 make it through all the way around. Even though you know there were gigs, some of the last parts of the tour, the gigs had to be canceled because half of two thirds, really, of no, actually three fourths of the those of the sourcing left. Right, as did several of the roadies. Um, but yeah, I mean that experience, and then I went back. I, I, I went to UCLA when I got back for that year and, and I wrote some songs and we realized that uh, we didn't want to re-record all the songs that we had. We'll keep a few, but we had a bunch of new stuff mm-hmm. and that's when we went into the studio and we were lucky enough to, to get Tom Wilson to go in with us. who's a great producer and, you know, he worked with TSOL and Adolescent and, um, you know, we were pretty happy with how it came out. We, we, we hadn't worked with him before Several of the songs when we went in the studio um, were pretty either brand new or very new. We, we were just sort of coming up with ideas in the studio, which sometimes works out well and other times doesn't, but it worked out well for us um, in that case. Do you see your popularity kind of explode after the LP comes out in Southern California? Or, or was it always like just a constant? Yeah, I mean... I, it was never an explosion. It just sort of was a build. It was, it was building, you know. But for sure, putting that record out and getting good reviews and some pretty big, big time, you know, national newspapers, music magazines, and LA Times and stuff like that, 
was was a big deal um and it it gave us opportunity to go out and do another tour of the u.s which yeah i mean there there it was pretty amazing when we went out on the tour after the record came out because definitely we were drawing a lot more people than you know what you see in in another state of mind that most of those shows were not uh more than a few hundred people at, at, at that um when we went out after the sound of fury record came out you know we, we played in boston and it was about a thousand people and it was insane it was a riot you know we were we were showing up at places and there was lines around the corner in some of the shows and uh, so awesome. not all of them but definitely the big the, the bigger cities we were doing pretty well and then and it, it got us interest from Europe and we were able to license the record in Europe and then go tour Europe in the fall of '84 um, so yeah obviously having a record out makes a difference when people like it your second tour do you go in a van. Uh yeah, yeah we we we've been in vans ever since. Yeah, <laughs> that is cool. And Which then, I never really, I never really thought about it. Um, I mean, the reason that we we've always said we never want to do a bus is just we're you know we've always been a three piece and maybe four piece for a lot of the last twenty years. But um, we like being in a van, and uh, maybe we just had an aversion to buses because the because of another state of mind tour. The bus kept breaking down. I never really thought about it, but this buses are huge. I get why bands do it because you don't have to get hotels, but I like, personally, we like to stop and hang out in town and meet people, yeah. you know, that we come to play for and, and, to, and to sort of live in the city, even if it's only for a day, but just to hang out and get to know the city a bit and, and see, see what's going on there. I mean, I, I just, I've always had an aversion to to touring as the sort of thing where you just stop, you know, you don't sort of mix with the with the local people. You're you're going all that way to play for them, so why wouldn't you want to hang out with them? And I, I remember there were some labels who would go out on tour and they'd only take bands on their own label to to support them. I mean, I always thought that was pretty shitty too. I want to meet the local bands that are playing. That's how you. That's how you network with people and get to make friends and and hear different music and, and meet new people. I mean, that's something we've always tried to do. And you know, we ended up meeting a lot of cool bands that we ended up putting the records out, like SNFU and Seven Seconds and the Bouncing Souls and the Breeze and so on and so on and so on. So, yeah, that kind of leads into the the second comp that you do, the Something to Believe in LP, because um, you you put some Canadian bands on that I'm sure that you met on the. The another state of mind tour, right? Did you meet SNFU on that tour? Yeah, we did. We met a bunch. We met quite a few bands on that tour. We met Stretch Marks on that tour. Met the Unwanted. Um, yeah, and um, and then U2 Youth in Toronto and Young Lions, and so that was. And also because we're originally from Canada, we felt the sort of the kinship, I guess, and we sure. wanted to help out putting bands out and there were a lot of good bands up there that weren't getting the attention that US bands did so we thought oh this would be cool these are good bands I mean we wouldn't have done it if the bands weren't any good yeah well, you got DOA on here too which is also like one of the the real early touring road dog bands yeah what? but DOA was already somewhat established so yeah. you know everybody people knew about DOA so we it wasn't 
they were helping us more than we were helping them. Sure. And we were happy to have them and be involved. But, um, yeah, you also have seven yeah. seconds on that seven on excuse me on that comp, and then in '85 you do their classic LP, the Crew. Do you remember? Yeah. Do you remember meeting Seven Seconds the first time? Uh, I think they came down here and played. They might have played with us at the cafe. I'm not sure, but yeah, um, yeah, they we definitely met them down here, and then we. We became friends with them and we went out and played Reno. Um, and I know that Pusshead and, and, and Kevin were writing to each other and Pusshead came down with his band stuff to Jeff. Um, I know that we were in, he came down to the show that we were doing in Reno and, and he and I, me and Pusshead were walking across the street before the show and got caught up in some sort of um, sting that the, the police were doing trying to nail underage kids going into casinos, not even doing anything wrong. They weren't, they weren't even allowed to walk into the casino. Jesus. And I said, this is ridiculous. You know, I was 21 by then. So when they realized that I was 21, they made up some bullshit for me and Brian that we were walking in a, in the, against the light in a crosswalk, even though it was a green light and we were walking in a crowd in the middle of a bunch of tourists. So it was complete bullshit, but needless to say, we didn't get to play the show because I spent a good part of the night sitting in jail waiting for someone Jesus. to bail me out. Jesus. Yeah. But, oh, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> well, that LP is is super, super awesome and classic. And then uh, does Youth Brigade, you kind of take a break and you start doing The Brigade in 86? Yeah, we, we did a seven-inch first. You did the What Price is Happiness in 84. Yeah, and then we we were sort of, you know, we were getting influenced by more melodic bands, you know, the New Wave bands. And, and the whole punk scene was kind of exploding with sort of violence. I mean, the Olympic Auditorium, the scene was sort of dwindling a bit at that point where shows moved from the Olympic Auditorium to Fenders. That was become the main place where shows were happening. And, um, a lot of fights. And then my what, brother Adam what? decided that he was going to go back to art school. Um, and when that happened, you know, we got this guy Bob, Bob Gnarly from Plain Rap in the band, and we we were just writing songs that I guess were getting more and more melodic, and I don't know. We decided that we would be the brigade, the youth brigade. And, it, you know, if you listen to what we were doing, I, I like it. I mean, for me, um, it's sort of the sort of natural progression of the more melodic Euclid stuff that we were doing. Um, but a lot of bands were doing that, you know, Channel 3, Seven Seconds with New Wind, Adolescence, um, TSOL, you know, Jack left and they got Joe Wood in there. And that was much more bluesy rock band than what they'd done before. But it was just sort of the thing that happened. Yeah. Can we can we just jump back a little bit because you talk about the scene dwindling, and just in my head is so hard to wrap my head around the uh, the idea of their like shows of the Olympic Auditorium like punk rock shows, like yeah. what what is a band that could headline there and and sell it out? The only time I've ever been there is like to see pro wrestling. <laughs> um, the bands that were headlining there were you know. 
mostly the English fans would be the big draw. So the big headlining um, tours that come out. Yeah, but in those days, they didn't really do these tours. They would just come out to the West Coast. They played the West Coast, the East Coast, probably maybe Chicago, maybe a show or two in Texas, just a bigger space. They wouldn't do the full U.S. tour. It just wasn't, it didn't make sense for them because they're not going to draw. You know, L.A. was, was at that point and still is to this day the biggest punk rock scene in the world where, you know, bands that have a draw can, can still bring in, you know, two, three, five thousand people, depending on who the band is and what the bill is and so on. So those, um, those English fans, yeah, would, they, English- would they fly in and then they, they would just fly between the major metropolitan areas, like with their guitars and, and just have like a back line? Um, yeah, they'd rent the back line. I mean, it's the okay. same thing, you know, so that's what all the bands do still to this day. They would fly in, they would probably bring their guitars, they might rent a van to go if they're going to do L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, sure. maybe Phoenix. And then they might fly to Chicago and then fly to New York and maybe do New York, Boston, Philly, something like that. Yeah. And, um, and when there was shows in the Olympic that, Auditorium, was it like, was it just on the floor or did they have like the like the seating open and everything? Like, was the whole thing packed? The The floor would be packed. And the okay. bigger the bigger shows were probably five thousand, four or five thousand people with big with really big shows. Jesus. And the floor would be pretty packed and you know, people some people would sit up in the seats, but that was more just to take a break. Um and I mean, you know, Dead Kennedy could probably put a would headline. Um, maybe Black Flag or Circle Dirk might headline. Um I'd have to look at the old flyers. We you know, we were usually around second on the bill, third or second or third on the bill. I know we, we did a show when we got back from Europe with the Circle Bricks and the Vandals. So there was there there, there were there were a lot of a lot of the shows with English fans. You'd have a good strong Southern California bill um, with just them sitting on top. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know. An English fan on top, yeah, and it wasn't all the English fans. It wasn't any English fan, but for sure, GBH in those days would could headline for sure. Um, I mean, Cockbar never came over. They, they wouldn't, you know, Cockbar is bigger now than they ever were back way back then, but they never even came over. And that, and those early bands, I mean, you know, the class wasn't together at that point, but the class would have done. The class were never really involved. Like when the class first came over, they played at the Santa Monica Pacific, and they had. Bo Diddley opened for him, which was amazing. But, um, you know, I remember the, it may have been the second time they played was they did three or four nights at the Palladium with the English Beat as main support. Wow. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Did Blitz, Um, did Blitz ever come? I don't remember Blitz coming to LA. I I know I heard that they played in Texas and the, and the singer got hit by a car, right? Well, yeah, that was like 10 years ago though, right? That, that wasn't like in their prior. That was okay. more, like 20. 20. I think okay. it was in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember Blitz ever coming. Um, most of the, a lot of the, in the early days, like Sam, Sam played at the Whiskey Two Nights with um, Ted Kennedy's Open with main support. That was sold out. Stranglers played the Star Wars, probably played 
I can't remember. I think they played someone else. The Jam came once and played at the at UCLA, which was a pretty amazing show. Wow. Um, who else? Susie and the Banshees played the Whiskey. The Whiskey was the main place early on. Yeah. And but when the when the scene, you know, the, the the sort of one of the shows that really where it really changed was the first punk show at the Olympic that I know of was Public Image, and that was the show when like. Everybody, and that was in 1980, and that was the show when the punk scene just sort of blew up because that was that was when all the, you know, me and my brother were surfers, and we knew once the surfers got into it that it would explode. And that night, you just saw people were meeting up from all all these different places. Um, there was a bunch of Huntington Beach people there, and unfortunately, people with long hair were getting beat up because you know we used to get chased down the street by. Um, long haired, you know, sort of, they weren't rednecks, but like they were bikers. just locker people. They weren't even bikers. I mean, they were just guys with long just hair. Just thought punk rock. Yeah. Yeah. They just, didn't, huh. they didn't like punk rock. But there were plenty of people with long hair who loved punk rock. And just, you know, unfortunately, at that point, people were so pissed about, you know, people in the suburbs would get chased by people with long hair who thought you were a weirdo. You know, you get called fag, you get called all kinds of stupid weird dumb names that made absolutely no sense because people are afraid of things they don't know about because people are ignorant. Yeah. But that all changed, you know, punk rock. Then, then punk rockers became the, the crazy ones that you didn't fuck with anymore. Right. Um, and that, and that show of public image at the, at the, uh, Olympics, there was probably 5,000 people there. And that was, that was, the, that was the beginning of the, when the scenes really started to explode in LA. Yeah. So what what's the cap? Uh, you know, what's the cap at Fenders? Is that like eight hundred, a thousand? No, Fenders was, I think it was like a couple thousand, maybe. Holy like shit, that's still huge. Fifteen fifteen hundred to a couple thousand, something like that. Um, yeah, it was still pretty decent size, but compared, you know, before before the Olympic was really taken off, the Fleetwood was doing shows in the South Bay, and that's sort of where you had a meeting of. South Bay Punk was exploding and then the Huntington and Long Beach people were exploding. So a lot of those bands played, you know, kind of white DSOL, Adolescent Soul Distortion. And we were doing shows with bands in LA. We would find halls to do stuff. We For a while, we were doing shows out of the roll rink out in the valley called Savage. Uh, what was it called? It was in Northridge. Uh, Happy Times? No, that was the one down there. That was another one. I forget the name of the roll rink, but um, and then we did shows at Cal State Northridge at Devonshire Downs. So we did a couple there. So there was places all over. We, we were just always looking for places to do shows. So. And then what happened was we were we were one of the main promoters in LA for you know after we after we were doing those shows at Godzilla's and then we did the Palladium and we were doing shows at Roller Rinks and wherever we could find. And uh, the guy, the, the people in New York were, who were booking the English bands were trying to play us and. Gary Tovar, who's doing Golden Boy, but he started, he was doing it in Santa Barbara and then Goleta. Um, and he was, they were, he started to come down to LA to do shows. And the, and the agent in New York was trying to play us off against each other in a bidding war to push the guarantees up for English fans. And we just called Gary because we'd played shows with Gary. Um, and we just called him and we said, this is dumb. You know, we, we know we don't want to raise the price, the ticket price at the door. So let's just work together. And so that ended that, that whole play for them. 
there was a guy in San Francisco, CD Presents, this guy David Ferguson, total asshole. Um, he tried to come to LA, and we, we kind of fucked him over a couple times, and he, he stopped. But um, we just got to the point where, you know, Gary was doing a good job, and when we did the Youth Movement 83, that turned into a huge riot. Um, and that's when we, that was co-promoted with Gary. Um, and that's when we said to Gary, you know, you just do the promotion. We're, we're out. We yeah. don't want to deal with it anymore. How long did the, um, how so long that, did, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, and, that, and that's when he, you know, eventually he's the one that moves over and started doing shows. As things started exploding, he's the one that ended up doing the shows at the Palladium. I mean, at the Olympics. Okay, cool. How long did the brigade play shows for? How many years? Uh, maybe a year. Oh, okay. And then you yeah, you start, you, you're still doing the label and, and hustling because you start, are you licensing, like, the you do, you do like a, there's a French press of a youth brigade record that comes out. There's an Italian press, and it's kind of like a mishmash of a lot of your best songs. Yeah, that was just a, a sort of limited license thing with some people that we met when we were on the road. And, but basically, I'd, I'd made a deal for Europe with uh, Don Loader, who ran Southern Studios. Um, I got in touch with him because Ian from Minor Threat had started working with him and told me he's a good guy. Um, he was a good guy. Um, but over the years, his very sort of laid back, um, uh, I won't say anarchist, but you know, because he worked with Kraft. Sure. Um, but he definitely, he definitely has a sort of mentality of, look, we don't, we're a real no frills thing. We just put the records out. We don't do advertising. We don't do all that. And oh. I said, that's fine. It was just, you know, eventually when we when we stopped with the band, I stopped running the label out of the states. I just said, you know, you just do it for the world now. Um, and that was right at the time of when the CDs were coming out and he was a very, very, he had a recording studio there in, in England too. That's what he started with, was the recording studio. Um, and he, you know, he's a very smart guy who knew a lot about um, getting good sounds. Uh, and so he was very, very into the whole CD thing. And when, when the CD started, it cost a lot of money to master the digital. Um, but he's the one that did it for all of our stuff. Um, but, he also, the, the label got bigger, and that's when it changed from we don't really do any advertising or any of that to switch something 180 degrees where they were all about that, we're spending all kinds of money. And we had never really discussed doing all that. And he just sort of changed the terms of our deal without discussing it with us. And when I called him on it, yeah, it just, we ended up leaving because it just didn't, it didn't work for us. Um, and that, that's when we took it back, when we, you know, we tried working with him a bit when we started, then my brother started World Crown Review, and that was probably about eight, uh, 88, 89, mm -hmm. when they started playing, and then I think we recorded the record in 89 or 90. Yeah, 90, I think it was. And then I had another band called That's It for a little while. 91, 92, um, do a couple records? A couple seven inches? Yeah. Yeah, we did, I did an album and a couple seven inches a German seven inch and we recorded actually in Southern studios when we were on tour the first time. And I, I and then we just, I couldn't stuck. find that, but that's it stuff. What is that like? Um, huh. it's, it's sort of like, I guess 
in between the youth brigade and the brigade stuff, I guess. It was, it's okay. more melodic. I mean, we had Tommy from the Stupids in the band. Okay. But his stuff was very sort of poppy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stuff I was writing was maybe a little bit harder than that. Yeah, but it definitely was melodic, more melodic than that. Right. And then also yeah. right at that time, 1991 is when uh, you do the scene with California CD. Which is basically all the uh, all the classic youth related stuff from the eighties gets put on one CD. Yeah, is, that happened awesome. when we got back together because we used the we used the um, we used the artwork from the English version, mm-hmm. English release of Sound and Fury. You know, that guy that that was done by one of the guys from Craft. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that on the yeah. Um, yeah, we used that on the CD. And then you get back together in 91? Yeah, we were basically, I was on tour with That's It, and my brother's on tour with Royal Crown, and we met up um, in Europe in a German, I don't remember where it was. I was, Ham- oh, it was in Hamburg. We were at the bar after the show, because we both, we both, both our bands played that night, I believe, in Hamburg. So I said, oh, all right, let's meet up at this bar. And we met up at the bar, and, you know, Jens from uh, this band, the Smarties, German band from Hanover, who we we put out their record back in the in the eighties. He had been following my brothers around with a guitar, playing all these Youth Brigade songs, going, "Why aren't you playing? You guys should do Youth Brigade." Yeah. So I said, "You know, I'm fine. I'm happy to do it, but the only thing I say is that we have to write some new songs." Sure. And so they agreed, and we wrote some new songs, and we put out the Come Again EP, and. We, we, we played in L.A., we did a few shows around, and then we went and toured the U.S., and we toured Europe, and, and that's, that's, you know, it's been on again, off again ever since. Yeah, and that's a that's an amazing comeback record. I mean, you're talking about years and years of not writing E3A music, and it comes back and like, I think it's the first, the first and the fourth song, like, they just sound like so classic E3Aid. And then there's a little little stuff on there that's maybe a little more rocking, a little more like mm-hmm. maybe more outside the box of of the classic youth brigade. But like those songs are just dialed in, like you're ready to go. Well, I mean, consider that you know my brother's been playing jazz music for at that point what three four years, and the, sure. and I've been doing the stuff with that this. So, and we've both been on the road, so we you know we had our chops and. It's like, all right, we're going to do Youth Brigade. So it was definitely this thought in our head of don't overcomplicate it. Let's do Youth Brigade. We're not trying to do, you know, we're not trying to do anything super different, super complicated. Let's like get back to the roots of what Youth Brigade does. And yeah. that, that, that was our plan. And I, I think we did a decent job on it. Yeah. And so you said you did a full U.S. and Europe off that? Uh, I think so. But honestly, can't remember exactly. But I'm pretty sure because it was it was pretty normal for us. The plan is always, you know, w- when we do tours, we always sort of map them out ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we use an agent, which we don't always do, a lot of times we book it ourselves. But even if we do, even if we use an agent, we just sort of map it out. Like, here's what makes the most sense. You know, the bigger towns you, you try and do on the weekends because you're going to have bigger crowds in those towns no matter what. Sure. Um, you want to get you want to get them on the weekends. But 
we we like to route things where we're not driving all over the place, and we like to try and set it up that if we you know if we have a town that we like, then we can hang out for a few days or set up space there and just drive off an hour this way or a couple hours that way to do a show and come back. Um, and the same with Europe, we you know we like to do it in a, as much of a circle as possible. We don't like to go up and down and back and around. That's of course. another reason why we don't use the, the, those buses. I mean, that's a lot of bands will do shows, do tours with the buses and they just live on the bus. You know, they sleep on the bus. The driver, after the show's over, they just get on the bus and drive to the next town. And, you know, that's, to me, that's never, that's like I was saying before, I, that's not fun. I want to hang out and party with everybody. Because that, that's, that's really what it is, right? You're driving to a different city every day to have a party with the people and, yeah, what's the and point? celebrate, you know, yeah, you celebrate the music and get together and exchange ideas and drink some, have some drinks and reminisce, talk a little philosophy and social justice and whatever, what have you. Um, and that, that, that's a huge part of being on the road for us. We enjoy that. So, I, I you know, I don't know. I guess it's more of a job for some people. So, you know, I get out, I play my hour or hour and a half and then I get on the bus and drive to the next city and yeah. that's it. I'm not there to hang out with people. I'm there to just do my job. I don't know. That's weird to me, but I have actually talked to people who that's what it's become for them. And if it became that way for me, I would stop. Uh, I wouldn't enjoy it. I, it's never been a job for me. You know, this is what, this is our life. Yeah. This, this is a community of people that we've been, working with together with them trying to uh make a positive difference in the world for the better part of 40 years yeah so. what is uh southern california punk rock like in 1992 what's the scene like because this is like right before um, right before it breaks but you've already had you know like the penny bad religions back they've been back for a few years they gotta be popular you know you have the pennywise the epitaph bands no effects is already good by now. Um, so there's, yeah, it's, these bands it's are going. starting to, yeah, it's starting to resurrect itself because what happened was the hair bands took over in the sort of 86, 87, 88, 89. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of a, a resurrection of, of, you know, Fugazi. And I mean, even bands that people don't consider punk rock, but that, that sort of kept that punk rock aesthetic. To me, on the radio, you know, the Pixies, um, Smashing Pumpkins, and that whole sort of whatever they call it, post-punk, you know. For for me, even if you don't consider it punk rock, it's definitely inspired by punk rock. I guarantee you that all those people in those bands will list you a whole bunch of punk punk rock stuff. And then, you know, the early beginning. Yeah, it's still a counterculture. Yeah. And then then the, the, the grunge thing is starting up. But I mean, yeah, by this, by this point in the early 90s, the punk scene is nowhere near what it was in the, you know, 83, 84, 85, but it definitely still exists in Southern California. And like you said, Bad Religion, I remember seeing I saw Fugazi at the Palace. It was insane. It was like seeing a jazz band, you know, some, yeah. some classic Miles Davis or something, the way they, the way they played. And I took Fugazi numerous times before. And at that point, Billy Bragg was out touring around then too, doing pretty well. Um, 
and then you know what what happens you get uh bad religion leave epitaph around that time in the early 90s green day blows up offspring blows up um and then rancid and no effect follow you know not not necessarily as big but all these fans are getting on k-rock which is a big deal at that point because that's helping you move from selling you know 50,000 to 100,000 records um, into the realm of gold and even platinum records so you know talking 500,000 to a million or more so yeah and do you see was, do you see any of that with the happy hour LP that comes out in 94 it's right at that time uh no not us yeah we're still we're still a fairly underground punk fan um and we we suffer from the same thing that caused us to sort of fall apart in the 80s, which is we have a label and we have a band. We have duties with the label um, that every time we go out on the road, things of the label aren't, are sort of, they're not in limbo. We have people running things, but it's just, we just never have the resources to, to hire a staff and we're not making enough money as, as a band and getting us popular um, to, to help push the roster of the label the way, say, Bad Religion and then eventually Rancid and Offspring and No Effect were able to do for Epitaph. And then, you know, No Effect splits and starts, like, starts fat and, and, and gets a bunch of bands that he produces all the bands and they have that sort of fat sound. That yeah, the, the Ryan and, Green, the do that do that do that Yeah, and that, that coupled with the fact that No Effect is blowing up and taking all those bands out on the road with them helped basically get the whole crowd that loves No Effect to be into No Use for Name and Lagwagon and on and on and on. We never had that, but we have a we have a much more diverse taste in musical styles, and we never would go in the studio and try and make a, a sort of BYO sound. You know, we we just sign bands that we like whose music we like and we you know who we believe we could help uh, i mean the bouncing souls would probably be one of the better examples of a band that we were able to help them grow and you know and hepcat too and I, I hope the brief as well although unfortunately they just didn't they never got that kind of attention i thought they deserved because it's just a great band but the same thing with leatherface you know yeah i was just going to ask about that how did you meet leatherface you know, I heard them, I had this Spanish girlfriend, and I heard them from her. I heard much when we were on tour in the early 90s, and I really liked it. I'd written to Frankie, um, and he, you know, at that point, the band was broken up. And he said, yeah, we're not, you know, Dickie's out, and we're not doing anything. And I said, well, if you ever do, you know, we'd love to put a record out. And then Hot Water Music, I heard about them. I hadn't really heard their music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Wallard called me up because he said, you know, we want to tour with Leatherface. We're huge fans. And I contacted Frankie and he said to call you because you're his label. And I said, really? Awesome <laughs> news to me, but that's great. Um, and that's when Mark and I came up with this sort of idea of let's put, you know, they, they want to do a tour. And I said, well, if you, if you guys are going to do a tour, put a record out because Leatherface hadn't had a record out in a while would be a good idea and Frankie said well I don't think I've got enough for a record and that's when we all sort of put our heads together and came up with the idea of 
you know, he, he was all, we just do an EP. And we said, you know, it costs the same amount of money to make a, a 12 inch vinyl with six songs as those to make a 12 inch vinyl with 12 songs. So if you don't have enough, how about we do a split with you and hot water music and time to do your tour. And that's how the split series started. That was a brilliant idea that a, a bunch of labels did after that. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't our, we're, we're not, it wasn't an original idea. I mean, people have done it before, but I, I think most of it had been done seven inches. Well, it would be just, done as one-offs, not as like a series. Yeah. Well, Mark and Mark really like he, he, he came up with the concept of sort of following that blue note jazz thing where the, where the covers were similar all the time. Um, that's why you see that we had that in the first two. And then the no effects ranted one Tim, Tim decided he was going to do his own artwork, which we said, fine, you know, whatever you want to do, you want to do artwork. That'd be great. People will dig it. Um, yeah. So that, that, that was, that worked out well. Um, you know, and then just everything was sort of morphing and we started our party in Vegas and that ended up becoming our, our sort of, you know, the thing that we live with now because digital was, was taking over during that whole time of these last 20 years. And well, we gotta, records, we, we gotta do the two LPs first, Sean. So cause okay. we got, you did happy hour 94, which is yeah. rad record, but yeah. to sell the truth, 1996, this is the masterpiece. I think, I think it's yeah. the best youth brigade record, you know? Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like it. I that, absolutely that love was, it. You know, that was when we were touring a lot and, um, you know, Johnny was in the band and Johnny wrote a song. It, it's funny cause Johnny would bring in these songs and I love Johnny. Um, he's a little depressing for me, but that's just his personality. Okay. Um, but that song, the one song that we did put on there tomorrow was the song that he came in with because you kept bringing these songs in and I kept saying, Johnny, these songs are great, but, they would be much better if you were in, you should be in social distortion. Yeah. I, I kid you not. You can ask him, and I'll tell you. It's true. Mm-hmm. Um, these would work much better for social distortion. They just don't really work for, for us. And then he wrote tomorrow. Um, well, we kind of had this sort of riff and we sort of all came up with the music and, but he had the lyrics and, um, yeah, I mean, that was, that, we're like, yeah, this is perfect. This works for us. This works for you. for you. I mean, it's still a little depressing, but, uh, <laughs> but, but unfortunately, you know, that's just not the kind of songs he wrote, which is why he ended up getting a social distortion, which sure. is perfect for him because he writes songs that are perfect for social distortion. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean that, that record, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that record. It was definitely sort of, um, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of good songs on that record and we, we still do a lot of those songs. Yeah. We, you know, we've been touring quite a bit. For the past several years, at that point, so we were in a good, we were gonna in a good state to write songs, and uh, it came out well. Yeah, so dialed in and catchy, and I don't know, it just seems like where where do you? I guess this is a good time to ask. Oh, uh, generally, where are you when you write songs? Like, how does a hook come to you? Um, there's there's two ways. I mean, sometimes I'll just something will pop in my head, and I'll just sit down and sort of play a little bit maybe i only get a a a melody with a few chords but i'll 
hold on to that and then I'll go over it with my brother. Sometimes it's, I'll get like a full Birkin chorus and that's the whole basics of the song. And then when I sit down with my brothers, we sort of flesh it out and throw in some ideas. Everybody throws in some ideas. Um, and the lyrics, sometimes I'll just get an idea. Maybe it's a song title. Maybe it's a couple of lines. I, I just write stuff down and I just throw it all into a, you know, scraps of paper and I throw it all into a binder. Yeah. Um, it's rare that I can sit down and just write a song all sure. But sometimes I do. Yeah, sometimes I've got music and then I just sort of hum along melodies until I come up with something. Maybe I'll, I'll bullshit my way through when we're playing it. Um, I won't have any words necessarily, but once we sort of flesh out the music, I'll sit down with some ideas of songs. Maybe I have an idea when I've been sort of making noise when we rehearse that um, a couple of words will come to me. I'll use that as a basis and then I'll sit down and put something together. Sometimes I just sit down and start writing and I'll be able to write the whole thing out. But, you know, sometimes it's a, a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, just, there's no one way for me. Yeah, I was just wondering if there was like a pattern with with it coming through because like the songs are so like it's just lots of hooks. So like I don't know if I'm alone on a Wednesday night, I'm on my fourth drink, and that's when like a hook comes to me. Or I uh, almost all my ideas they come to me like in the shower. And when I was talking to Tony <laughs> Cortez from Ill Repute, he was saying the same thing. Like I just get hooks in the shower, and I think it's a uh, it's like a white noise thing, or who knows what what the fuck it is. But you know, you've been writing songs for your whole life. Writing song is not like it's not like doing traditional artwork where you're sitting down and you're laying down lines. It's, it's more of a channeling, I think. Yeah. But I mean, I think there are people, you know, there are people that are disciplined and that's what they do. They just sit down every day, sure. you know, just like a writer who writes novels you know, sure. or screenplays. They sit down every day and then just write. And, you know, then it's a process. It's an editing process. And that's my editing process is more like a jigsaw puzzle. Like I say, I, I'll, I'll have a book, full of scraps of lines here and there. Um, and I may try to put some of them together and it may make no sense and it may seem really stupid. But I mean, I was an English lit major, so when I would write, have to write a paper, I would write a, a draft and then I would let it sit and then I'd go back and then I'd edit it and cut it down and I'd do the same thing now when I'm writing emails, when I'm writing stuff for punk rock bowling, when we were writing bios for bands things like that it's the same sort of a process of you're just always editing you know cutting it down making it more taut getting rid of the extra bullshit that you don't need um i'm always very conscious of, of, of words because it's important you know to, to, to me it's, it's, it's really important to not be super simplistic uh, mm -hmm. i think that's that's an insult to the people that are listening to your songs and i mean for me words matter Mm -hmm. almost as much sometimes more than the music um, and I also think melody is super important the, the voice is the lead instrument um, the human voice is unlike any other instrument you're going to find I mean people could argue that synthesized music you know maybe on computers can rival the voice but I, I would disagree with that at least I have yet to hear the equal of the human voice or anything that people have done with computers um, and I think it, it should be the lead and, you know, you can't just mimic what the, what the melody of the music is and the music should always be sort of behind the vocals. Um, I don't like it when, you know, simplistic 
punk rock music is when the music is da 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 and the guy sings da 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 da. Of course, it's stupid. You know, that's not how that's not how music should be. That's not. It, it may stick in your head, but are, are you going to really be able to discern what the vocals are and what the what, what's being said? No, you want the the hook should always be the melody of the vocals. You can have other hooks that are music, a guitar line, a keyboard line, drum or bass, whatever. That's fine. Um, and those, those are, that's very important, but I still think it's important to have, um, a good melodic line. That's, that's what, that's what makes the best songs is you have to have a good melody. That's what you're going to get, have a good hook. But I, I often come up with great ideas when I'm sitting out in the water surfing. Yes, Fortunately, yeah. I lose tons of them because, you know, <laughs> I'm out in the water surfing and I forget them. Yeah. It would be great if I had a chip in my head that I could press and go, Okay, here's my idea. Record it. I could hum it. And record it. I guess I could. Maybe I could do it on an Apple Watch. I don't know if they're waterproof. I don't even know if you can record on those. But I'm sure I could. But I've never bothered to figure it out because I figure, you know, there are songs. There are there are hooks in my head that I've been carrying around with me for the last ten years. Right. That I still know. You know, and hopefully I'm supposed to sit down in the next week because we got to rehearse in about a week and a half um, for our shows that are, we're doing in January. So. I'm going to write, try and write a couple of songs. That'd be awesome. Cause I mean, there's, you there's, have, you there's, there's certainly is a hell of a lot to talk about, right? There's no time like the present on that. Yeah. You know, and it's been, yep. it's been 20 years since the swing and utter split for you. So yeah, I think it's time that, to me that those songs to me are some of the best songs we've done since town and jury. I mean, and, and, uh, and those songs were written very quickly, like in a week, I think. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. I will revisit that LP. I haven't listened to it in a long, yeah, long time. Yeah, I, I really like the way they came out. Um, you know, the thing is that we have Johnny playing with us now, and he, he keeps bugging us. Come on, man. Because he's been working with Fat Mike and we're, we're working on the studio. Fat Mike has But Unfortunately, we haven't written any songs with Johnny because and Johnny is a huge fan of No Effects, especially since he's been working so closely with Mike. I'm very wary of of coming up with you know Johnny's like just just give me you know if you got a melody or just give me the basic stuff and then we'll make a song out of it and I'm, and I'm very wary of that that process that he wants to do because I know it's going to end up sounding like it's not going to end up sounding like a you for your time. <laughs> yeah well, no, maybe not with you watching over it you uh you've put your time in well what I what I'll probably do is I'll come up with some ideas and then I'll sit down with Adam because Adam has a unique style but the biggest problem with Adam is that he gets bored of his, he writes incredible bass lines, mm-hmm. um, but he gets bored. There, there were times when we'd be working on stuff and I'd say, oh, remember that thing we were doing yesterday? Oh, I don't remember. But I this is good. And I don't know, but what you were doing yesterday, I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and it just yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. That's when we started just putting it some way to record the rehearsal so that he couldn't. There's no way he could forget it because we had it on tape. Yeah. So you do think you're going to attack doing an OP next year? Um, every year we say we will. So yeah. Hopefully this will be the year. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> How many months out of the year does does punk rock bowling take up for you as a full time job? Um, probably about eight nine. Not as a full time job, but that's pretty much what I spend my time on. But um. I finally convinced my brother that we can bring in more people. I've been arguing with him for the last 
three, four years that we just don't have enough people to do this and it's just too much work. And I said, you know, we're, we're doing well enough now that we can hire more people. We can pay people to do some of this stuff. There's no reason that we need to be doing it yeah. ourselves all the time. So he seems to be understanding that. That doesn't mean he's necessarily going to change, but I'm hopeful. And, it, you know, and if, if we're able to get more people involved so that we don't have to do as much work, then I'm hopeful that uh, we can spend a little more time doing things like writing songs. So. And surfing. Be good. But, yeah, surfing, yeah, definitely. So, well, Sean, I really appreciate the time. Hey, thank you, man. I hope uh, I hope it was good. Yeah, um, I, I, I can leave it open for you, but uh, I like to ask people at the end if, if you feel like you've been well-represented here. Because I try to do my homework oh, yeah. and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's some great questions. I mean, um, I, you know, I just talk a lot. So. No, it's great. I'm never at a loss. I'm never at a loss for words. I love it. That's great. So that that makes it a lot easier, obviously. And and I do. I prefer to do these in person, but it's just sometimes it's hard to hook everything up and doing it on the phone is is so much easier. But uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You've been great though. I really appreciate the time. And uh, oh, thank you, man. Talk to you sometime soon. I'll uh, I'll keep you posted. All right, all right. Take care. Thanks. All right, see ya.